Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, Season 2. What are we ready for today, Chris? Chalmers Conscious Mind Part 2? I'm afraid not, you guys. Uh, I'm afraid not. (laughs) So I know I've been hopefully not hyping this up uh, too much. It's going to be what it's going to be, but um, things are getting better. I mean, we're we're past the boring bit. We're now in uh, Chalmers Conscious Mind uh, is getting into the... um, uh, thought experiment of the zombies, which is, you know, pretty cool, I suppose. Uh, a very serious philosopher talking about zombies, comparing them to um, real-life flesh-and-blood co- blood conscious human beings. That's an interesting uh, analysis, if you've ever done it. You know, it's like, uh, if you remember sitting in um, science class in the middle school, and you're learning about um, viruses and bacteria and... Uh, what else are they? Or, um, little microscopic uh, life forms that you never heard about before. I'm trying to remember the different the different families now. Uh, I feel like I'm missing one. Protozoa. That's the one. You guys, you guys remember protozoa? <laughs> when was the last time you heard that word? All right. So all these sorts of things. Um, and uh, I, I remember. You guys may may have a similar memory of um, being pretty interested in that. You know, like. We found dirty places in the school. We 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 uh, rubbed them rubbed them with a Q-tip. We put it on a petri dish. We grew a bunch of stuff, and then we looked at it under the microscope. That's cool. They've never done that before. You know what? Are, what are the uh, what kind of bacteria can you grow? Uh, what kind of what kind of uh, fungus is growing there? I mean, what what's going on? And you get to see all that kind of cool stuff that's always been invisible to you. Um, one of the questions that came up in middle school, if you guys remember, or, or maybe early in high school, is talking about. A virus, and how it doesn't fit neatly in a box, um, either as a living creature or as a non-living thing. It doesn't fit neatly in the box, and we have all kinds of criteria we can throw at you as to defining what makes something alive. And um, look, we don't have to go too far to think about that. A plant and a human being are very different types of things. Not a lot in common at all. Even when you look at our cells under a microscope, very, very different. But we're both alive, and we all sort of understand that intuitively. There's no argument. And you can look at something like a bacteria, and you can see it going around, doing its thing, eating, defecating, you know, reproducing, doing what living things do. And then you look at a virus, and your teacher tells you it's not alive. Or there's an open question as to whether it is alive. And you see it doing all the things that a bacteria does, more or less, and you're scratching your head, like, what in the world? What do you mean a virus isn't alive? Guess what, guys? A virus is not exactly alive. There's not a, there's not a way of putting it 
you know, exactly in a box that checks all the right boxes. This is a living creature. It doesn't do that. Um, there are other things like prions. If you guys remember, if you remember mad cow disease, these proteins, they're not alive. They're just proteins. But if they get in you, they can cause all kinds of crazy disease and death. Um, you know, cannibals, human, you know, people who eat human beings get a similar disease from mad cow disease caused by prions. What the fuck is a prion? That's my point, man. Uh, David Chalmers is talking about zombies and humans in a way that would be like trying to compare a virus and a bacteria when you were in middle school. It's like, okay, it's kind of a person. It does everything a person does, but it's not a person. And it's really interesting. So I'm not going to spoil it more than that. Uh, just tell you that's kind of what I'm dealing with right now. He's still building the argument. So I promise you I'll bring it to you, but, uh, but we're not ready for that today. I am... Uh, another day late and dollar short because uh, today is Monday, and you were uh, you were owed an episode yesterday. So Kyle and I did not get together. I had family visiting, messed up the whole schedule, uh, the kind of ordinary schedule, and we were hoping we could do it in the evening, and we didn't. Uh, so you know, guess what's guess what you're going to get today? A little bit of me all by myself, solo. Chris, uh, I had a nice chat. Um, not chat, I guess, text, virtual chat with a friend of mine who I've shouted out on the podcast before. Uh, shout out to Eddie. Uh, just a friend of, um, a friend I kind of, you know, grew up with and uh, became friends with, um, you know, some of my closer friends. And um, he listens to the podcast. I think that's great, man. I uh, didn't know that he was listening regularly. I'm pretty honored by that. Um, Eddie was the cool kid on the on the bus, uh, and I was listening to my podcast while he's working. Shout out to Eddie. One of the things he said, though, which I thought was awesome, uh, was that these solo episodes, uh, which people like my brother will tell me are just god awful, boring to him, and he wants to skip them. Uh, and I, you know, look, man, many of you may feel that way, and that's you know, teach their own, man. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but they got a lot of stuff that I like to say that I got to get out of my head. And the stuff I think about all the time is God and consciousness and, you know, origins and philosophy and stuff like that. And like I said many times, you have to speak and you have to talk and you have to write in order to think that there, those things are all synonyms, you know. So having this monologue right now is a way for me to think. And I try to do that with these solo episodes as much as I can, you know, talking about things I don't understand so I can try to understand them better. And that's the way you do it. It's hard. It's something like an art. It's something like work. But it's also fun if you find the right questions to ask. And one of the things Eddie said to me that was encouraging was, uh, he's like, look, man, I'm glad you didn't listen to your brother and some of those people that, that uh, get on your ass for uh, your solo episodes because what they've done for me is given me a way of thinking about God you know, as an atheist or as somebody who's not a religious believer, is giving giving him a way to think about God that doesn't that he doesn't revolt from that that doesn't you know um, that doesn't send up those flags that religious people will send up when you try to have similar conversations. Um, you know, when you're when you're getting uh, hung up on mythic stories uh, that are just stories, you know, and you're taking them literally, and you're you know. You're talking about the dogma, and you know there's only one God, and there's only one right religion, and you know, the the, the Bible and the sacred texts are authoritative, and you know, like all that stuff. It's like, yeah, man, but you can you can ask questions about that, and if you can't ask questions about that, then you're dealing with, you know, some sort of authoritarian dictator, and that's no God for me. And so it, it really, 
was encouraging to hear somebody say that, you know, hey, the, those those monologues do actually help me to think about things in a, in a different way, and it's been meaningful. So anyway, Eddie, man, thanks. If you hear this, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it. And that brings me to today's episode. All right, so last several solo episodes, two or three of them, we've been i just been reading these essays that I put together when I was first thinking about doing the podcast and wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Uh, and I thought maybe it would be some kind of prepared monologue and then decided that probably wasn't the best idea just because it, I wanted it to be more conversational. That's why I like doing the episodes with Kyle so much, you know, back and forth and the conversation goes where it goes and that's fun. When it's prepared, it comes off as prepared. Um, but you know what, I, I decided to let you guys in on it. I mean, some of it's a little embarrassing to me when I go back and read it. It's like, ah, maybe I wouldn't have said it that way if I was doing it today. Um, maybe there's ideas that have changed or things I would add to, but I'm not doing that. I'm, what I'm doing is laying this out for you. Um, so you can rewind several years into the past and you can hear what was on my mind uh, then, you know, shortly after I had this mystic experience for the first time, when my entire world sort of changed, my perspective changed, um, I, I had an enlightenment. I had a spiritual, um, boy, I don't even know what word to use. Um, I just had a fire lit in me in a spiritual way that uh, it maybe had never been before. It, it was validating uh, in, in a strange way. And, um, you know, it, it's allowed me to it's allowed me to do this podcast. It's allowed me to say all kinds of stuff that I might have been reluctant to say publicly. Um, so anyway, I'm just going to keep going with this. If you remember the last few solo episodes, it's going to be something similar. Um, I think I have at least a couple more of these to go. So without further ado, here we go. I recently watched a very interesting documentary on the evolution of the human eye. It began with a description of a life evolving in the primordial oceans of Earth. The narrator painted a picture of elements, primitive compounds, and proteins swirling around, mixing with one another, and being nurtured by energy from the sun, from thermal vents and volcanic activity. The mystery of how these conditions breathed life into matter isn't addressed, but taken as a given and as the starting point in the story of the eye. From here, the story pivots to the earliest evidence of photosensitivity in primitive, single-celled organisms. The narrator describes what it must have been like for these early photosensitive cells to experience light for the first time. This miraculous occurrence would have changed the world instantly, from a non-visual plane to one that is divided by two distinct states which did not previously exist, light and dark. The story of the eye picks up steam from this inauspicious starting point, building quickly towards the development of a photosynthesis. The advent of photosynthesis effectively divided the world again into those primitive life forms that could use light for energy, the ancestors of algae and plants, and those who could not. The line that would eventually become the animal kingdom quickly exploded with variations, improvements, and modifications to the photosensitive cell mechanism. The narrator then lays out 
the meandering progress of the eye as it passed down the generations and became specialized and more and more sophisticated. Better and better versions of photosensitivity soon gave way to the faculty that we would call sight, imparting a powerful competitive advantage to those life forms which possessed it. As the narrator lays out this narrative, the viewer is presented with a sort of reenactment of each distinct state of eye development and the quality of vision associated with each of them. The original photosensitive state, for instance, was illustrated from the point of view of a single-celled organism floating in the primordial ocean, seeing fuzzy shades of black and gray. This state gave way to a fuzzy, low-resolution field which included flashes or indications of movement and of boundaries. Progress brought clearer and higher resolution imaging through the development of the lens until the state of vision became fully recognizable as sight. The final stages of development included better and better depth perception and that dynamic Wizard of Oz moment where color vision finally emerged. Uh, as fascinating as this documentary was, it was not the evolution of the eye that struck me as particularly interesting. It was, rather, the implication that the narrator was unconsciously recognizing. When the narrator described the first creature on Earth to ever experience light, there is an implicit understanding that light, let's say the sun and the stars, had already existed for billions of years, but was only now being observed. The implication is that the cosmos is not illuminated by the stars which produce light, but rather by the observer capable of experiencing it. It was the eye that illuminated the primordial oceans, not the sun. Stranger still, as the narrator describes the progressively improved versions of sight, the point of view of the seer seems to transform the world around it. The world is no longer limited to a spectrum of black and gray, and from that haze emerges distinct shapes, borders, and objects. You see, the more sophisticated eye observes more and yields new information about the world. For that seer, the world has been transformed from a black and gray cloud into something more. There's a way in which the world could not be said to have the property blackness and grayness, or the property of distinction, shapes, or borders, until an observer emerged capable of experiencing them. This harkens back to the age-old question usually posed this way. If a tree falls in the forest with no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Now we all understand that a falling tree would snap and crack as limbs break under its weight. The vibrations of its impact with the ground would also, without question, cry out with a resounding thud. The question being asked, however, is not about the physics of sound waves. The question is about the existence of sound 
in the absence of a hearer, in the absence of consciousness. See, if we agree that a sound exists only as an experience, then the experiencer is necessary for that phenomenon to occur. The sound waves themselves are, of course, present with or without an experiencer. But the phenomena of sound is not. This does not stop with sound, but extends to all phenomena. Form or appearance cannot be said to exist without a seer. Tactility or texture cannot be said to exist without a feeler. And of course, sound cannot exist without a hearer. Now, returning to the subject of sight, we can see how the way the world looks is directly related to the capacity of the eye to see. As the eye is capable of seeing more, the world takes on new and more complex dimensions. The world comes into form when eyes come to recognize that form. It takes on dimensionality when eyes come to recognize depth. And color emerges when eyes learn to discriminate them. See, these are all properties that are latent in the world, but which come into being only when observed. What could this possibly mean? I can see no other way to interpret this other than to say that consciousness participates in the structure of reality. As consciousness develops more sophisticated means of experiencing, that which it experiences takes on greater and greater sophistication. Observing dimensionality imparts depth to reality. It makes it possible to be near or to be far. Observing objects makes it possible to encounter them. There is a sense here in which reality holds an infinite depth of complexity, limited only by our ability to experience it. The implication is that infinite being rests in some way unmanifest within reality. It is poised to emerge at every moment, waiting only for an experiencer to bring it into being. So when I take my own conscious experience as an example, this is what I find. As I experience the world, my view of the world grows and becomes more sophisticated. There is a sense in which the world matures in unison with my own psychological maturation. It is as though the world becomes more as I myself become more. Psychologist Jordan Peterson puts it this way in describing human neurological development. He says this, quote, As you differentiate the world, you differentiate yourself. It seems that the act of feeling, hearing, tasting, smelling imparts these properties to the world. The consciousness that experiences the world, in a manner of speaking, makes the world. And this statement brings us face to face with another uncanny observation. That it is the structure of reality from which the cosmos emerged that also brought consciousness into being. Material reality transformed over billions of years from the Big Bang 
to the present moment to bring into existence creatures which can consciously experience it. The universe essentially evolved itself into self-consciousness. As we've already shown, consciousness imparts being to reality by experiencing reality. In the same breath, we must acknowledge that reality has given rise to consciousness. In this way, we seem to have a structure which relies on consciousness to exist and which transforms itself into that required consciousness. Jordan Peterson quotes the developmental psychologist John Piaget describing the, the phenomenon as follows, quote, Knowledge does not begin in the I, and it does not begin in the object. It begins in the interaction. Then is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. Whew, buddy. John Piaget, everyone. All right, so making an extraordinary statement requires extraordinary evidence. When I say that the world becomes more as I myself become more, what I am claiming is that reality manifests to me only what I am able to be conscious of. I experience only those things which present themselves to me as they present themselves. But I'm also making an even bolder claim. I'm not only suggesting that my biological and psychological limitations restrict how reality is experienced by me, but also that the capacity of consciousness to experience restricts what reality actually is. It is as though what exists in material reality is directly proportional to consciousness's capacity to experience. In the language of the mystic experience, it might be said that being emerges from non-being, but only to the extent that its material substrate makes possible. It is easy perhaps to see this illustrated in one's own subjective experience. Consider how simplified the world seemed when you were a child of five years old. Now the world appeared much as it does today, albeit larger and more mysterious. But there was much left unexperienced, and therefore unknown. The world simply did not contain for us then the complexities of work, of the demands of the future, of anxiety, or of consequences in general. Neither did the world come packaged with the demands of culture, no politics, religion, ideology, or the extension of being into abstraction. The world was seen self-evidently as a place to have experiences. How strange it is to come to realize just how much more to the world there is to be uncovered. As one has more and more experiences and develops the ability to sense and understand more, we come to find, even in those experiences that are commonplace, greater meaning and depth. Let's take an example the experience of a creature of the opposite sex. So let's say a girl, for instance. A girl might be perceived by a male child as a person something like himself with relatively arbitrary distinctions. As sexual maturity begins, 
the same girl is suddenly imbued with a mysterious, unconscious appeal, which did not characterize her before. Now, puberty and the exploration of romantic relationships may in turn transform her into an object of sexual desire, a companion to experience the world with, and even a tool of self-reflection. Life experience finally brings full illumination to her as she comes to exist as a complex individual, born from the path of her own transformation. The girl, or woman, then, becomes also a sort of embodiment of an abstraction, which is common across the domain of the feminine. She's the bringer of new life, the mother, that which selects. When observing her from any of these developmental vantage points, she is only incompletely understood. It is only when we consider her entire path of transformation as a whole that we come anywhere close to understanding the infinity of being that she really is. What does this mean exactly? What is the implication? Well, what is observed here is the fact that there seems to be no bottom to what an object is. The girl in this example becomes more and more as you observe more of her, as you take into consideration more of the scope of her being. But what if we take a more personal example? What if we take ourselves? In trying to take full account of our path of transformation, we must observe all the things that we are and all the things that we have been. We have all been, for instance, two distinct living zygotes in all the phases of development that brought us to our present state. An embryo, a fetus, an infant, child, an adolescent, an adult. And these are only the things we've been with reference to ourselves. Consider what we've been to others. A sibling, a friend, a romantic interest, an enemy, an object of admiration, an example, even just a passerby. While this is far from a comprehensive list, it sets the stage for a greater point. If we allow ourselves to elaborate on these examples, it quickly becomes evident just how vast and difficult to contain the experience of any object actually is. Returning to our example of a girl, we might say that she was something even before her conception. Perhaps she was an ardent hope between loving parents, a yet unmanifest potentiality. At her birth, she is the thing which softens her parents' hearts and fills them with joy. The experience of her in that moment transforms her parents into beings which understand what it is to procreate, which are confronted with ultimate responsibility, and which can choose their own path of transformation as a consequence. As a sibling, the girl may be that which challenges her siblings that which transforms them and herself into something that can cooperate and coexist. She may be an example of competence that her siblings model or strive to replicate, or maybe the opposite. More still, she might be many of these things simultaneously in unique combination to countless people. As a romantic figure, 
She may be that which joins the feeling of love and sexual desire into a wholly new experience. She is that which transforms herself and her lover into beings that know what it is to be one in body, to share an intimate experience and to be exposed and vulnerable. Even as a passerby, she might be the embodiment of beauty that inspires a stranger, the example of kindness that imparts hope, or the familiar face that reminds another of someone long forgotten. You see, the experience of the girl not only transfer, transforms her continually, but also transforms the world. Neither she nor the world would be exactly as it is without her. No one who encounters her is unchanged by her. Perhaps the strangest realization here is that an object is as much, if not more, a part of other people's conscious experience as it is of its own. Following just one example illustrates the web of experience which extends far beyond the self. Consider an act of kindness bestowed by a stranger. Perhaps you observe the act in awe, not understanding why someone would selflessly sacrifice. Inspired by this example, you seek to understand and yourself become a bestower of kindness. You can see here how the transformation in the first person extended to the second and is poised to continue. Now consider for a second if that person was not a stranger. Say it was, instead, your long-dead grandmother. Now we can see the domino effect of transformation extending beyond even death. You see, the next person to encounter kindness in this string of events is the beneficiary of an experience whose origin no longer exists. In all of this, it can be seen that any object of experience is inextricably connected to countless others, maybe all others. There's a seeming infinity of interconnections, of causes and effects, which exist latent in all things. Any given experience contains within it infinite potential. Now this, it would seem, is a property of being, of all of material reality. I am reminded here of the vision of the fractal, which accompanies the mystic experience. In this image, we have a representation of infinite geometry, composing and emerging from a larger whole. We see examples of this abstracted in the language of science, in math, for instance. In math, we find representations of infinity within a single whole, say, with the number pi, whose decimals run on endlessly. An infinite impasse is also found between any two points, by moving only half the distance between them in perpetuity. Half the distance brings one ever closer, but ultimately never to the destination. On the largest of scales, we see this represented in the material world by the expanse of space, which extends infinitely in all directions. And even within our own minds, we find the capacity of imagination, which too seems to have no limit. There's a sort of fractal depth 
to experience. Jordan Peterson makes this point when speaking of the future as, quote, folded up in the present. Dr. Peterson describes the future as the potential which lays latent within the conditions of the present, which can be brought into being at any moment. In this way, the potential future is seen as already existing somehow, unmanifest within the present moment. There is a unity of present and future. This unity imparts an infinite nature to the ever-fleeting present moment. It places within the finite now the eternal seed of potentiality. As we come to understand the infinite depth of experience, which exists latent in all things, we, we must return to consciousness. Consciousness is, after all, that which experiences. What presents itself here is this. Consciousness participates in material reality by experiencing it, while at the same time, those experiences transform consciousness. It is as though conscious experience works to transform material reality into something ever better equipped to experience it. As evolution continues to furnish better brains and novel sense organs, we experience more of the infinity latent in reality, and in doing so, bring more of it into being. This interplay between consciousness and material reality is built into the structure of being. It is the system by which infinite potentiality is made manifest infinitely. It is non-being, being. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 